So my name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. They liked it when I sat down and stayed still last week, so I'm going to try that a little bit today. Um, We've been in a seven-week sermon series called Then and Now, where we have been talking about, uh, for the first three weeks of that series, we talked about the history of this local church, the, the sort of the moments in our, in our church's life over the last 75 years almost uh, that we feel like have not only defined us uh, in our past, but continue to, to define who we are becoming in the future. Um, and then for the last three weeks, and including this week uh, on our final seventh week, we've been talking about evangelism what it is, why we do it, how we should do it, how we should not do it. Um, and, and, and so today we're going to sort of tie all that up with a bow, hopefully, as we uh, finish up this series about what does it mean for us as a church to be loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, so I want to start by saying that um, Reagan's uncle is building us a dining table, which is really cool. Um, to explain why, I should explain that a few months ago we went and bought a house, which is a wonderful trial for every marriage. Um, As you search on, you know, I just, thank you, California, real quick. Thanks, California, for screwing up our housing market. Because you go on Redfin, and and Reagan will be like, oh, I love this house. Here, look at the link. And I'll click on it. It's like, it's been sold. You're like, that's terrible. What just happened? Like, it hit five minutes ago. Um, And you're like, hey, I want a house that doesn't cost a million dollars. Well, you're living in Oklahoma. So that's, that's also fun. Uh, but when we were looking for a house, the one thing that I knew that um, we were going to need was a dining room, and not because I want a dining room. Um, in fact, I'm fine without a dining room. Um, I love you. It's because Reagan wants a dining room. Um, if there's one thing, if you know us well, then you may have heard me say that you know Reagan and I are, are different in, in a really interesting way. Um, I think every good marriage has what we call positive tension. You know what I mean by that? Married couples, you know what I mean by that? Positive tension. It's, I think that every great marriage I've ever seen, uh, the couple is aligned in really important ways. Like, you, you know, you've got to have those, you know, core values that you both share. Uh, but I think the greatest marriages that I've seen also have couples that are very different in sometimes hilarious ways. Uh, and that's what I call positive tension. It's the thing that keeps it interesting, right? Um, so Reagan is like the extrovert's extrovert, right? Um, she goes to the party and she's crazy making up the music and getting the dance floor started, and she's talking to everybody, and I, I know I'm outgoing, I know I talk to a lot of people, but y'all, that wears me out. Like, I, I'm an outgoing introvert, which is really confusing. Any other outgoing introverts in the room? Yeah, I know y'all are, in, yes. We need to, like, start a small group or something, and we'll never meet, and it'll be beautiful. We'll just send an email to each other. You good? I'm good. Okay, great. So Reagan's this extrovert's extrovert. I'm an introvert. You know, she comes home from Sunday, and we've been talking to people, and we've had a million conversations, and she's ready to talk some more to me. And I'm like, you're insane. Like, I'm ready to nap. I'm ready to do anything other than talk. And so at our old house, we did not have a dining room. We just had this small kitchen and a little spot to put a table. And it, I knew that it was like soul-crushing for Reagan because uh, we couldn't invite over the big big group of friends and have everybody around the big table and and get all the chairs pulled out. You know, we could have like six people over tops, which is like three too many for me. And for her, it was like not nearly enough. So I knew that when we were looking to move into a new house, we were going to have to get a dining room. Now we've got a dining room. Well, I say that. We kind of have a dining room. We've got a room 
that's supposed to be a dining room without a dining table. And people, some would say that the dining table is the most important part of the dining room. Without the dining table, it becomes room, right? For us, it's like a storage room right now. It's where the dog crate lives. Uh, but Reagan's uncle's building us a dining table. And we went to visit uh, Reagan's family, and we, we met with him, and, and he was showing us the progress he was making, and it was really, really beautiful. You know, the, the, the care he put into it. He's in retirement. He's become like this really, really talented amateur woodworker. And... Um, and so he was going over the different pieces. He'd gone and salvaged some stuff from like a silo or something. It was really cool. And I was looking at it. I was, I was amazed not just because of the stuff that the table was, not just because of the design of the table, and not just because I was thinking about how cool it would look in the room and the, and the cool things we could put on top to make the room look nice. But I began to think about how long we're going to have this table and like all the people that are going to gather around this table. Because we've lived in our house without a functional dining room for like, what, five months, give or take, if that, four? And like, Reagan's already had us host like 50 people. And I'm like, we've got to slow down, right? Um, that's like my, that's my quota for the year. I'm like, doors are shut, bye you know. Um, that's what we've done without even a functional dining table. I'm kind of terrified of what's going to happen. And I'm really excited, though, too, because my life has been richly blessed by these fellowship meals that we've had and being able to talk to people around a table. And I think about, man, we're going to have this table our whole lives. We're going to hand this table to our kids one day. This is a really cool thing. Um, dining tables are important in Scripture, too. I, I don't say all that just to, like, catch you up to speed in what's going on in my life, right? Like, Dining tables are important in Scripture, too. Jesus has a lot of scenes around dining tables. There's a lot of changed life stories that happen around dining tables. And one of those stories is about a man named Zacchaeus. Um, maybe you've heard his story before. Maybe you haven't. Zacchaeus' story is told only in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. That's where we're going to be working today if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app. And just so you know... For those of you who studied it before, this will all be, I'm sure you're like, oh, yes, we've heard this a thousand times. Every time we teach Zacchaeus, like, you've got to teach, like, the Zacchaeus things. Didi knows what I'm talking about. Because you've got to say, you know, Zacchaeus was short, so he would have been ridiculed. And also, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And I'm not going to go into, like, the five-minute spiel about, like, Roman taxing hierarchies. and stuff. No. Here's the bottom line. He was not a very well-liked guy in his community, to say the least. Uh, he would have been seen as a traitor. Uh, he would have been seen as a sellout. Um, he, his job was to rob his fellow citizens, basically. He was a Jew taking money from other Jews on behalf of the Roman government. Not exactly the top of the social hierarchy, right? And so this guy, this guy, who in the Jewish community would have been seen as the lowest of the low, this guy is going to get a dinner invitation from Jesus. Let's see what happens. Beginning in Luke 19, chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't see because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Everyone who saw this grumbled. Can you hear it? They grumbled and said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. 
Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. The human one came to seek and to save the lost. So there's three things I, I noticed when I read this scripture. The, the first one is this. Um, so last weekend was the, was the wedding. Uh, it's the wedding. Like for the Lover's Lane staff, like we've been building this. It was the wedding of the season. And, uh, and so uh, it was a beautiful wedding. You know, JB and Emily were great. Kay Eck did a fantastic job. It was special for me because Kay officiated our wedding. She was the one who got us married. Um, so that was special for me. It was special because my daughter uh, was the flower girl. I say she was the, she was, there were two flower girls, but my daughter was the flower girl, right? Um, and she was perfect. She's 18 months old, made it all the way down the aisle. No tears, smiling the whole time. I'll rent her out, you know, for anybody that wants her. Uh, she's beautiful. She's great. And, and, and then Reagan read scripture, which I didn't actually see because my daughter got upset that she couldn't throw her bouncy ball during the wedding in the sanctuary. So she freaked out. We went out back and watched uh, Tarzan on my cell phone. Um, then we go to the reception, and every time I go to a wedding reception with my wife, I know something is going to happen that I don't want to happen. They're going to start playing dance music, and she's going to want me to dance. Now, I, I don't know if you can guess from the beginning of this message that my wife likes to dance, and I don't like to dance. Positive tension, right? Um, and so every time I know this is coming, i got to work up the courage to get out there. Because here's the bottom line is I'm not a good dancer. Again, don't know if you could tell that about me. I know you think that I've got some fresh moves. I don't, right? Like this is where it goes, right here. Like, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's ugly. It's bad. I learned them all from my dad. Um, but I know it's going to come. I know she's going to want me to get out there because Reagan loves to dance. It's life-giving for her. And so every time I get out there and I look like an absolute fool and I'm praying that nobody's YouTube in this disaster that's taking place on the dance floor. But I do it because I love her. I do it because I love her. I really do. And the thing is, is I have fun. I, I really do have fun for like two songs and I'm out, right? I have a lot of fun. And I'm glad that I did it every single time even though I know that I looked like a fool. When I read the story of Zacchaeus, um, I, I'm struck by the fact that he runs Right? He runs over to the sycamore tree, which you got to keep in mind that guys back then wore these long cloak robes. Right? So he's having to hoist this up, and he's running like a total goober over to the sycamore tree. And then he climbs the tree. Do I need to explain to you how the view changes when a man in a robe climbs up a tree? Right? He's looking like a fool with the whole community watching, and he doesn't care. Because he's just got to see this man named Jesus that's coming to town. It makes me think, am I willing to look like a fool for Christ? Am I willing to be a fool for Jesus? Am I willing to hike up my skirt and climb up that tree? Am I willing to go to places that other people don't want to go? And to be with people that other people don't want to be? And to stand up for things that other people don't feel the need to stand up for? Tom Shipp, who was the first senior pastor of this church, you know, we've been talking about history as a part of this series. He was the first full-time senior pastor of this church. He, he, would, he loved the Zacchaeus story. He'd say the church needs to be up a tree and out on a limb for Jesus. And I love that because what I would say is the church needs to be ready to look foolish for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because there's going to be things that Jesus is going to ask us to do that is going to make us feel a little foolish. 
They're going to be people that Jesus calls us to be in ministry with that we might think, oh, God, are people watching? You know, Jesus might ask us to go and have conversations that make us really uncomfortable. Jesus might ask us to become vulnerable like a man in a skirt up a tree. Now, don't take that literally. But Jesus might ask us to become vulnerable and allow parts of ourselves to become exposed that we don't want exposed because we love Jesus that much. Are we willing to become fools for Christ? Some days I am and some days I'm not. Some days my pride gets in the way and I say, I'm not climbing that tree. They're all gonna laugh at me. Forget that, I'm out. And I've just missed the chance to see my Savior, right? That's the first thing I think. Second thing I notice is at this, is at this dinner table. You know, the, the scripture doesn't give us like timing things, but I, I notice that Jesus says, Salvation's come to this household. So I like to imagine that Zacchaeus's heart transformation takes place at dinner in his house that night. And um, what I notice is that Zacchaeus doesn't do what a lot of other uh, people who recognize Christ's uh, salvation, that they recognize Christ as Messiah. Uh, many times they'll go, Jesus, you're the Messiah, right? They'll make this sort of proclamation about who Jesus is. I have faith in you. You're the Messiah. That's not what Zacchaeus does. What Zacchaeus does is he informs Jesus that these are the tangible ways that I'm going to change my life because of who you are. Not only are you the Messiah, but God, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And I'm going to, if I've ever taken anything from anyone falsely, then I'm going to pay back four times as much. He's not worried about math. That's bad math, right? Like he's going to be in the hole. What he's doing is he's saying, God, I, I believe in you so much. My whole life has been about being a tax collector. I'm going to flip that upside down, and my purse strings are going to go from closed cinch tight to becoming wide open, and I'm going to pour this out upon my community that I know that I've wronged. What Zacchaeus is doing is he is saying, the power that you are giving me right now, this dinner, this power that I'm experiencing, I'm going to turn that into reconciliation. The power that you're offering me, you've reconciled me to God. I'm going to try and now reconcile myself with my community. So what this story teaches me also is that Jesus asks us to use our power to seek reconciliation. Now, that sounds nice, right? Zacchaeus' story sounds like fun. Hey, real quick, Paul, who wants to give up half their possessions to the poor? Show of hands. Anybody? No? No? You sure? It would really help our bottom line. Anybody? No? Reconciliation isn't fun. It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's laboring work. It's sweaty work and bloody work. And it asks a lot of us because reconciliation means that I gotta pour out of myself. I've got to empty myself. I've got to open up my purse strings. I've got to open up my heart strings so that my community and people in my community who are hurting can be made better because of it. That's not fun work. That's difficult work that we can take joy in because of who God is. But guys, let's not get it twisted. Reconciliation is hard. But we can't run from it. We can't pretend like we can receive the power of Christ in our lives. You can't fall on your knees and say, Jesus, I need you in my life to help me with this, that, or the other. And then at the same time, when God taps you on the shoulder and says, I want you to make things right with this person, you say, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be reconciled with them. Well, tough. And like I say, this is someone who was reading Zacchaeus this week. And there are people in my life who I know God is asking me to reconcile with that I do not want to. And your pastor was convicted by this statement. I'm thinking, my God, how many times have I come to the table of Jesus and I've asked for Christ's power? 
And at the same time, I'm looking at the world around me saying, I'm not ready to reconcile yet. Well, gee, Mani, that's quite a bargain, Scott. Get all the power and none of the responsibility. I think about relationships in our lives. You know, reconciliation, we're having a conversation on the larger scale right now about reconciliation. We're we're talking about that term in terms of social justice and, and, and racial justice, and, and those are important conversations. And I touched on that a lot last week. This week, I want to talk about this. That reconciliation is not just this sort of big, amorphous, you know, theoretical idea. Like, reconciliation is the relationships that are in your life right now. And I bet if we went around the room, all of us could name one, two, three, four, five people that we do not want to reconcile with right now in our lives. And the question I come back to, you know, I've learned this through marriage a little bit, is that there are times when Reagan and I, because of that positive tension, it can lead to some disagreements, yeah, some fights over just stupid stuff. And what we have to come back to time and time again is the question of, is it more important to be right or is the relationship more important? Is it more important to be right or is it more important that the relationship be healthy? Now, My personality style, like 90 times out of 90, it's important to be right. Who wants to be right? Who's my right crew? Anybody else want to be right? I want to be right all the time because I am right all the time. Duh. No, I got it. That's more for me. I've got to constantly consider in my own life, is it more important to be right or more important for a healthy relationship? Now, let's be clear. There are sometimes it's important to be right. If you're in a relationship with someone and what they represent is something that you cannot stand for, <laughs> if they do something to you that is so egregious that, that that's not healthy for you and that's not healthy for the people in your life and you need to go into protection mode, then there are times it's important to be right. But I'm willing to bet there's a lot of those, if we name one, two, three, four, five people we don't want to reconcile with, there might be some on that list. If we really think about it, being right isn't that important after all. Is the relationship really the most important thing? All right. The last thing that this story points out to me, um, I'm always, it, it always gets a chuckle when I read this scripture, when the community of Jericho grumbles, yeah? <sighs> He's going to eat in a house with a sinner, right? You can just sort of hear just, ugh, ugh. There we go, ugh. Yeah, that's, there we go. That's Jericho. Do it again. Let's hear Jericho right now, ugh. Here's the thing that baffles me about that, is that that same community of Jericho who's grumbling over this dinner about to take place, what they don't know is that this dinner is going to become a blessing for every single one of them, that this dinner is going to lead to Zacchaeus' purse strings being drawn wide open, and everyone in this community that is grumbling saying, that's the guy that stole 20 bucks from me last week, they're about to receive it back fourfold. It makes me think about in my own life those times that I honestly wish that the table wasn't as big as it is, yeah? I wish that Jesus wouldn't invite certain people to the same table he's invited me to. I begin to grumble because I go, really? Really? They're getting God's grace right now? Really? Ugh. And what I don't realize is that maybe that person who I really don't want at the table, maybe their presence at the table is actually going to bless me, and I'm the one trying to keep them at arm's length. How crazy is that? You know, talking about the table that Reagan's uncle's building us, you know, my wife's got opinions. I love that. I love that. Because there's a lot of times I don't have opinions. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. I love food. 
Is it food? Let's eat it. Right. Reagan's got opinions. And so when the table was being talked about and we were discussing the design, like I thought she was going to have a laundry list of like, here, this is the table I need to see, right? Because I'm going to have this my whole life. Guess what? She didn't have many opinions I was amazed by. She was actually, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. That sounds great. There was one thing that she cared about. Do you know what it was? She said, I want the table to have a leaf. I want the table to be one of those tables you can pull apart and put more table in. I want a table that becomes more table so I can have a dinner that becomes more dinner and a party that becomes more party and friends that become more friends, right? That's my wife in a nutshell. I don't care what it looks like. I don't know. Paint that whatever you want. I want a leaf. (laughs) I want a table that can become as big as possible. Think about Tom Ship, senior pastor of this church originally. When he was a kid, someone put a leaf in the table for him when they fought for his right to have communion when he was living with a family away from his own. He knew what it meant to put a leaf in a table. So then when he took over Lover's Lane in 1945, he put a leaf in the table and he said, I want alcoholics to come gather around this table. And then in 1961, he put another leaf in the table. He said, I want people of color to gather around this table in Preston Hollow. What's God going to do now? And then in more recent history, we put a leaf in the table. We said, we want refugees to have a seat at this table. And then a few years later, we put another leaf in the table. We said, we want our LGBT community to have a seat at this table. And then we put another leaf in the table. We said, we want homeless people to have a leaf in this table. We want them to have a seat at this table. And I'll be real honest, guys, like if, it, if you or me or anybody else was in charge of this table, it'd probably look a lot smaller than it does. How many seats would we be taking away? If I was designing a table for our home, do you know what it would be? A TV tray. <laughs> it would. Table for one, please. I think a lot of us would make a table for one if we could. And I'm so thankful that that's not the table we received. I'm so thankful that Jesus made a leaf for me and for you and for everybody else in this room, and God's made a leaf for every person not in this room, and I can't wait to see who God's gonna call us to love next. This is a statement we make, not because we're there, but because we want to be there, yeah? Because we trust that God's gonna be putting more leaves in before we're done. And it might make us grumble. We really doing that? But every time you grumble, remember that that person's place at the table might just be a blessing for your life as well. I'm proud of this church. It's been a fun series. I am dog tired. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come to a close after seven weeks of studying not only what you have done in our lives, but what you continue to do and what you will do. God, this morning, let us imagine a table in our minds. A table not unlike the one that we see every morning in our Methodist church, an open table available to anyone and everyone who wants to receive. God, can we imagine you pulling the table apart, placing down a leaf, pulling up a chair and saying, here, I want you to have a seat. God, as we pull up our seat at the table, as we become thankful for the grace and the love that you shower us with at the table, keep us from grumbling. Keep us from grumbling when we see those people 
those people, the people that we don't want at the table, when we see those people get a seat as well, when we see you get up and extend the table again and extend the table again and extend the table again, help us not to grumble. Instead, help us to celebrate the fact that your table is big enough for everybody, for every heart that needs change for every life that needs to be transformed, including our own. God, as we go about our lives, as we go out into our communities and our neighborhoods and the streets that we live in and we wear our t-shirts and we put down our yard signs and we throw on our car magnets and we begin to tell the story of a church that is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't let us miss Zacchaeus. Don't let us just invite our friends. Help us to be a community that invites even those people, the people that we're not sure we want to see here to begin with. Challenge us, God. Get us up a tree and out on a limb. Get us looking foolish for the sake of Jesus Christ. Get us uncomfortable for you. Expose us, God. Allow us to live authentically in the communities around us because they need to see real lives for Jesus. God, most of all, keep us walking humbly in your will, whether we're walking to your table or from it. In your sons and we pray, amen.